I win my way, 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 I win my way. <laughs> did you see the Lion King? The I did. I finally saw the movie finally with my. Oh, did you see the play? No. Yeah, I see the play. Actually, I didn't even like it that much. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and it's very exciting. We have a a very high-profile podcasting, writing, entrepreneur. You do a lot of stuff, right? I don't know. It's stuck on high-profile. You can just say that. That would be so good. I don't but I mean like in the wake of Andy Dick, I don't know how high profile you are, but it's the same initials. It's Anna David. It's true. Same as Amy Dresser, previous podcast guest, too. That is weird. A D. Have you noticed that before? I've noticed it at well <laughs> my initials are A D. Definitely I've noticed it with Amy because you know, um on iMessage, it just puts someone's initials when they text you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And so I noticed, you know, I'm texting my camera right now, and it looks like I'm texting myself. It doesn't, but it, you know what I'm saying. Andy Dick, oh my God, I have texted with Andy Dick, too. Right. For a hot minute, he was going to come on my show, but he never did. Yeah, I, I, I Mike, the key to uh, any dopey success is luck and persistence. That is the key. I, I, I've learned that from listening and like hearing what you did with Artie and uh, Marin. Well, Marin was total, total luck. And Artie was like literally full on stalker dumb. Stalking, yeah. You but know, it works. It, it can work. You know, like my latest uh, person that I'm going after super hardcore is, uh, and it's hard to go after somebody on the other side of the country super hardcore. And I bet you could get him in a heartbeat. Fucking Russell Brand? No. I'm sure you could get Russell Brand too. Yeah. But uh Steve Jones. Steve Jones is who I want. He's dopey. Wait, Jonesy? Jonesy. That's who I want. Yeah, you can, he's not on the other side. He lives in LA. I live in New York. Right. You got me, you got Marin. Well, Marin, I guess, is back and forth. Marin, um, I, I walked out of my restaurant and Mark Marin was walking down the street. I you listened. Know? You listen to Dopey? Yeah. Yeah, listen to the Marion episode and the Artie episode. Yeah. Um, now, here's the thing, and not to be such an eight ball, but I've known Jonesy. Okay, this is a great story. I've known him my whole sobriety. When I, li- I lived in New York briefly, not briefly, it was three fucking long years, but it was 2007 to 2010, and I ran into him over tight friends. Hold on, say was- that again. Are you, for, are you holding it to your ear or are you doing speakerphone because you fear cancer? No, I'm doing this. How's that? How's that? I don't know. You're in and out. Are you walking around your apartment? No, I'm sitting on my couch. Do you live in a house? No, see, I'm not that high profile. Okay, if I put my phone, my head, my mouth right next to it, does that sound any better? Yeah, that sounds good. 
Okay, I'm just going to sit in this position. Yeah, hold it really steady. Okay. I get excited and I start moving. I didn't. I want you to know I was not moving my body around because just, that, I, I just wasn't. But, but here's what I want to tell you. This is a full-on name drop. So I run into Jonesy in New York randomly. We have coffee, and I lived in Chelsea, and I go, somehow it came up that he'd never been to the Chelsea Hotel. No way. I took him there to, like, where Sid and Nancy freaking did their thing. Yeah, meaning meaning died, and, and did heroin died. and died, yes. Uh-huh. But I took Jonesy there. I thought that was, like, probably my biggest claim to fame. Well, you've held, you have a lot of big claims to fame, but that's a crazy, crazy story. Can you do a Jonesy impression? No. You know, not only can I not, I recently released my first book on um, Audible. Yes. And I, I can never read anything I've ever written because it's, you know what I mean? It's like listening to your voice or watching yourself on TV. It's just a nightmare. And um, so I had never read it the book since it came out 11 years ago. So I was recording it and I didn't remember it at all. So I'd be like, that's a very nice dress. He said in his refined British accent. And I'm like, Oh shit, really? I had a British character and I'd have to, you know, do a British accent. Um, and it was, you know, terrible. Let's jump into your book because you brought it up and, uh, yeah. Uh, this is 2007. It came out. It's this book called Party Girl, and it was a, a novel about, uh, yeah. like, kind of a fuck up, you know, partying girl who needs a job, right? <laughs> kind of. This I, is what it I was. saw the you, movie years and years ago. Okay, that's not the, that movie is not has nothing. The Parker Posey movie, alas, has nothing to do with my book. I'm flattered. You think. My book was already made into a movie you saw years ago. The truth is the rights were just optioned again. It's the fourth time. But that time. was your book, wasn't it? No. It's the another Party book called Party book. Party Girl is not your book, Party Girl? Dude, Party Girl was my book. There was a movie starring Parker Posey that came out, like I think, when I was in high school called Party Girl. It has nothing to do with my book. Oh, my God. I'm so stupid. I am no, so stupid and unprepared. I wanted, cap- I wanted to capitalize on people thinking that with that title. Um, is that anyway, true? Anna, is that that's true? That's true. That's totally true. So how, yeah, come, so how the- could you put out a book with the same name of the Parker Poser movie? Posey movie. Because, Poser, because you can do that. You could put out a book called Party Girl. It's, you can't copyright a title. You can't? It, it, you could call it stupid to name something the same thing. I have a story about it. It's not very interesting. But when I wrote that book, I got this I had this very lucky thing where I got signed like the minute by an agent, the minute I finished the book, and then she sold it pretty much the minute I gave it to her. My luck kind of ran out after that, but that was like the luckiest week of my life. So she says to me, she reads the book, she goes, I think I can sell this. But a book came out, just came out called Party Girl. So I don't think... Like, well, then this is where I learned. She's like, well, you could have a book the same title as this other book. It's not a great idea. And then she looks it up. She's like, and then, and then we sent the book out. And, and she's like, oh, that book, nobody bought it. Okay, cut to right now. I'm sure you're not going to know this because you're not the target audience. But there's this book called Girl, Wash Your Face, which is like 
the biggest sensation since it eat pray love people are freaking out about this book and i looked and she's the one who wrote that party girl book that we dismissed as like unimportant and now she's like the biggest writer in the world rachel hollis anyway wait hold on rachel, i'm sorry what? was was rachel hollis the one who wrote the book that got optioned into parker posey's movie <laughs> no that's a different party girl neither of us wrote the book that became the Parker Posey movie because chronologically it couldn't have happened since books came out after. Okay. Well, so, so I think you're waking up to the fact that party girl is just a popular title for things. Well, everybody loves a party girl. That's why. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I feel like really, really bad. Like, I feel like this whole interview is like a sham. I feel like I'm a sham. I feel like this is terrible. I like to be a little bit prepared and I loved Parker Posey. She went to the same school as I went to, and I saw That's cool. a purchase. Oh, nice! Yeah, um, and I like—I I, don't—I thought I saw part. I think I saw a Party Girl when I was really high, and I don't remember it. Uh, but I always assumed that that was your claim to fame. So tell me, what was, Party Girl was a novel, though? It was not a memoir. It was well. See, it was a novel that was very much based on my life. And so I made this very specific choice, which is I had read a bunch of drug memoirs and I thought they're really good. And then the person gets sober and they're really boring. And so I didn't want to do that. And they're really serious and permanent midnight. You should totally try to have him on. Jerry he he's not coming on. Oh, did you talk to him? Before Dopey had any kind of splash in the pond, he was amused at the fact that I was a heroin addict and Jewish. But then once I went after him, he was not so amused. And like Amy Dresner mentioned it to him, and he's not that amused. And I'm sure Mark Maron mentioned it to him. And he doesn't seem that amused. And if, and if he's as serious as he seems, how good could he be on Dopey? He would be good on Dopey if he sat with me and I could, I could disarm him a little bit. I think he's, been on, he's been on my show. He was fucking great. So maybe you can get him to come on. He was my number two dream guest, but I figured it just was never going to happen. I thought he was too serious for me. He's No, the thing about Jerry Stahl, he blurbed Party Girl. I know. I read the blurb. The he, he, nice compared you, he compared to you. He compared you. Yeah, to Truman Capote. That's, what did you, right when he wrote that, what did you say? Or what did you think? It blew my mind. So I had worshipped him. I think Permanent Midnight is the best memoir ever written. Yeah, I was just seeing if that was hyperbole. It's not. And I worked very briefly in development at Disney, and I was completely high and did not have my shit together at all. And he walked in for a meeting one day, and I was like, oh, my God. And I went up, and I don't do this. Like, I'm one of these people. I've been out on dates with celebrities, and I pretend I don't know who they are. Like, I'm a cool L.A. chick. I understand that you got to be cool. Right. But sometimes I forget, you know, and so I go running up and he was super, I felt unfriendly and not at all charmed by my, you know, fan worship. Now I know him. He's a really shy guy is the thing. He directed, he directed the, the Marin sitcom. I'm like, yeah, I'm very, the thing that I love about him is that he wrote for Alf and I love all of that Alf business. And then in that movie, the fact that they didn't use Alf, like it destroyed that movie. Like people hate that movie. I like the movie. The book is obviously a billion times better. But just having Alf exist, I think, is, is critical to it. I think the movie should have been directed by somebody else. I think Ben Stiller should have directed it. But, but I loved the book so much that... It was hard for me to like the movie, but I liked it. I just, all the part I remember is when there, somebody, I think it's, 
he stole Owen Wilson's drugs and he's helping him look for it or Owen Wilson stole his drugs. And he's, I was just really freaking funny. Um, so, okay. My point is this, I thought, I assumed I was like, Oh, Jerry sells a total dick because like he wasn't nice when I went up and told him how amazing he was. And then years later, I'm then sober and I see him and I kind of do the same thing, but in a much more chill way. And I say, my first book is coming out and it's about addiction. I know this is so obnoxious, but would you ever blur it? And he said, absolutely. And he was so nice about it. And his, he had told me his sponsor had been Herbert Selby, you know, who that is? No, no, no. Last, ex- last Exit to Brooklyn. You would love that book. Um, and he told me that everybody called Hubert Selby Cubby. He said that Cubby said, you know, you all, when anyone asks you to blurb their book, like this is, this you do it. Because Cubby did it for him. Right. Um, so my point is this. He wrote that. I was totally blown away. And then I love that book. I wrote, you know, I've written seven other books and I don't like any of them. So me saying I love that book means something. Um, what, you love Party Girl or you love yeah. Permanent Midnight? You love Party Girl. I, we already went through how I love Permanent well, Midnight. I'm just making now I get sure. to talk about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love, I, I, it's just because when I wrote that book, I, I didn't know anything about how people were going to be mean, how people were going to say, Oh, I hate that character. And that the character was going to be me. Like I didn't, I didn't have any of these thoughts in my brain. And then all the other books, I've had those thoughts in my brain. Right. So party girl was just a completely pure experience. It right. was like what I wanted to write and tell. And I've never really been able to get back to that. So you almost like you you totally outthought yourself in the books afterwards where you were in the moment for Party Girl. Um, yes. You said something else, though, that I thought was really interesting because, like, I am, like, a drug memoir. I'm into drug memoirs, but I'm really into musician drug memoirs. That's, like, my sub-genre of drug memoirs. And, mm-hmm. um, and I hear what you're saying, that after they get sober, the book can get boring. Uh, mm-hmm. So in Party Girl, what was the technique uh, when you got sober? Um, okay, well, so first of all, that was why I made it a novel, because I felt like with a novel, you can completely poke fun of your ridiculousness. Like, it, Permanent Midnight, he does poke fun of his ridiculousness. He's, like, shooting heroin and then running. But but what was really fun about doing a novel was that I could create this completely narcissistic um, alcoholic character who has no idea she's narcissistic so she's running around the world thinking everyone's wrong and she's right and all that stuff that we learn and it's kind of hilarious the way it happens so it's so because that's the voice throughout she doesn't get boring when she gets sober and okay and so in my real life like cut to my real life in the year 2000 i i, I get sober in um i went to rehab in may and then i like Went out at night. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a good story, though. Um, so I get sober in 2000, and I end up getting hired at Premier Magazine. Wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. Let's what? hear the good – like, why skip the good story? Let's tell us the good because story. I'm, because I'm answering an important question. The question's not that important. We're going to miss it, good well, stories. Well, don't know what the answer was going to be. Okay, Anna, tell me the answer. Okay, okay, yeah. So – and so I get hired at Premier to do a column called Party Girl, and I'm six months sober. And so that seems so hilarious. You know, here I've been this party girl my whole life, and now I'm sober, and all I do is go to meetings and, like, chain smoke cigarettes and go to coffee and hang out with two cats and my new sober friends. Like, suddenly I'm, like, wearing this mantle of Party Girl. And I thought that was such a funny idea that that would be a good premise for a book. So that is the premise for the book, is a girl gets sober – gets a job called writing a column called party girl and then has to like 
pretend to be this crazy party girl when she's in fact like Susie Sober girl. That is an amazing answer. I'm sorry I even tried to get to yeah, that. Yeah, I told story. you you were going to like it. Yeah. yeah that is good. Um, yeah. So that's the, the premise of the book. That's a great premise of a book. Yeah, and I think that's why it's been optioned so many times is it's a really good – juicy kind of story and um it's perfect really it's it's a perfect idea it's like hiding out you know hiding out in sobriety as as the opposite of what you are it's like a wolf in sheep's it's like a sheep in wolf's clothing really that's yeah and i mean the thing is i'm obsessed with in a way all my books are kind of about the same thing which is what we are versus what we put out there it's just i think endlessly fascinating and and so and so I had a point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the point is that I was super fired up about this book and, you know, and then the publisher went under. It was all kind of a disaster. The movie never got made. And then and, and the audio rights never sold. And I was sad about it. And then it's cut to today. Where you, So I got my agent to get the rights back from HarperCollins. I recorded the audiobook myself. I got my friend to design the cover. And, like, I got to put it out. Like, I got to make my own dreams happen. And then at the same time, a producer came along. And he's a big producer. He produces Scorsese movies. And he optioned the rights. So here we are again. Was that today? Today? No, it happened, like, two months ago. Well, that's exciting. I know. We'll see. What do you think it's going to be a movie? Is it going to be a show on Netflix? Is it going to be? What is it going to be? We, we want to try for, you know, a Netflix type of movie. Um, and then show, sure. Um, what we really want to do, what he and I totally agree on, is make it... It's a full-on 90s story, because that was the story I was telling, but it was interesting to read it. Like I said, I hadn't read it until this year. And, it's, you know, I didn't know in 19... Whatever, in 2000, when I was writing it, that it was gonna, that things were going to change so much. You know, there were answering machines and... Um, Right. So it's a period you know, piece. It's a period it's piece. It's a period piece, yeah. That's right on. I wrote I wrote a movie when I was in college, okay? It was mm-hmm. it was called The Chill Bug, okay? I was a, mm-hmm. I was a stoner in college and I was in a like a class on postmodernism and we could write any movie and we could write any kind of paper for the project. You could do something creative, you could write a paper and a friend of mine and I got together and wrote this screenplay called The Chill Bug which was about a bunch of stoners in Ithaca driving to New York to get you know it's like a road movie, coming of age road movie, weed and and acid and all this stuff. And um and it was an actually, it was, the, the concept of the movie was, and this is very 90s, either you're chilling or you're bugging. And there's very little place in between. That was, that was the concept of the movie. And, um, and we wrote the movie, and it was, it was, I think it was good. And we got an A on the paper, and we put it away. And years later, we started to rewrite it. And we started to do coke when we rewrote it. And we, re- mm. we rewrote it with this buddy of mine named Todd, who, um, who actually died over the summer. And Todd would actually put Coke out, and we would do the Coke and rewrite it. And we were like, this is the greatest movie ever. And, um, and I erased it off the fucking computer. Accidentally? Yeah, of course, accidentally. And in my <laughs> mind, like it was, it was the point of the story was we had written it at the time. We rewrote it 10 years later, and I was ready like 
four years ago to bring it back, but it would have to have been a period piece. But it's funny, the idea of a 90s period piece now, because things have changed so much and you don't even really feel it until you read it, right? And so you see the details, pay phones yeah, and, and I, such. I have something to tell you that's going to make you feel a lot better. Uh-huh. I did a ton of writing on Coke. I've done a ton of writing not on Coke and then a ton of writing on Coke. The writing on Coke sucks so much. It's useless. Yeah, it was just like, it was an experience. I wanted just to look at it for the nostalgia more than the actual, you know, I don't really think the chill bug was going to set the world on fire. <laughs> Although you don't know. Did you ever you see? You really don't know with like those James Franco stoner movies and stuff like that. You know, sure, could have. Well, so here's what you reminded me of is when I was um, like, I don't know, late 90s, my friend and I, a friend who didn't do coke, we decided to do a movie, write a movie called uh, Scott Bayo is Dead. Ah. And it's about celebrity urban legends. And I end up writing the entire movie in some crazy five day coke fueled insane thing. And hand it to him and I just go like this is actually like brilliant I actually think I've written the greatest screenplay that's ever existed and he didn't really know um he's like yeah we showed it to people like six people who were like this is the worst piece of shit I've ever read in my life put this away I don't know the title really grabs me what was the concept so the concept so it was like you know you would hear all the time doesn't really happen anymore but like you would hear like Scott Baio died today and it was always someone super random and so you'd believe it but it was always a hoax and so we became obsessed with that and then there's this thing in LA there's a couple kind of classic LA people and one of them is this guy named Dennis Woodruff have you ever heard of him I think I've heard of him but I don't know who he is it's so L.A. He's basically this insane person who who is obsessed with becoming an actor and goes around town. He's still alive, but he's older. Handing out headshots. And he's got a car that he has decorated that says, like, all over it, please hire me, Dennis Woodruff, for your film. So he kind of became this, like, classic L.A. character. And, you know, the premise of our film, <laughs> Dennis Woodruff gets snubbed by all these celebrities, like, and he sets, and he, like, starts spreading urban legends about them. That's funny. That's funny. Nobody else thought so. No, it can be funny. Yeah, it ha- that kind of movie has to be incredibly clever. Do you know what I mean? It has to yeah. be, like, incredibly smart. It has to be, like, um, kind of like a 90s version of a, what was that Kevin Spacey movie? With uh, Danny DeVito as the gossip columnist and the porn stars, and it was like oh, it was like a film noir oh, kind of thing. That was so good. I the know. Curtis Hansen movie. Why can't I remember what it's called? I don't know. That was a good movie. It was, but it was like something like that with LA the, Confidential. LA Confidential yeah. with the mockery of of your idea. If you could put yeah. the two together, you'd have something. Now, before we spin out with yeah. with concepts and shit, you got sober in two thousand and six. No, dude, 2000. Okay, even better, 2000. And you, it's and, over 18 years. Well, that's very impressive. Mazel tov. I think so. Thank no, you. No, I think that's amazing. It's amazing. Um, first thing I want to hear about, you were, you were like a cokehead, right? Alcoholic cokehead, mm-hmm. that was your mm-hmm. thing? Mm-hmm. You were, Ambien. Ambien. I never did Excuse Ambien. I didn't. I never did it for fun. It, again, this was the '90s. Nobody did Ambien for fun. Like I did it because I was doing a lot of cocaine, and I really needed sleep too. You know. I, I heard Ambien. You have to build it up. 
so you can sleep. Like you don't just take it and fall asleep like it's a benzo or something. It's like a build-up sleeping pill or something. Well, you kind of, that's kind of the inverse is true. It works really well at first and you build up a tolerance really fast. So then you have to take more and more and more. It's like more than opiates. It it really is, it has a very short half-life. Okay. So you got sober in Maine? No. Oh, you said you got sober in May then. It was either May or Maine. Did you get sober in May? I went to rehab in May of 2000. And then Where'd I, you go? I, I, I went to Promises, but... so In Malibu? So, no, here's the thing. So again, late 90s, early 2000s, there was no... There was no dopey podcasts. There was no sober bloggers. There was nothing out there. All that anybody knew about getting sober was that Charlie Sheen had gone to Promises. That was it. And so I start making calls to go to rehab and I'm so high and crazy that I don't understand. I don't connect that there are two Promises. That there's like a super nice one and then there's the other one. So It's like Party Girl. It's like everyone thinks it's one Party Girl but it's actually the other Party Girl. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I go. Do you to think that's how the David other promises? Versus, that's how the promises set it up. They were like, that's we, how they. That's how they bill it. That's so we could set it. We could just take the other one's name, and they're gonna want to come to us because they think it's the other one. I think I that's know. funny. Well, well, it's also it is, but it's probably like more like a chain thing. The interesting thing is, I just heard that 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 uh, they call the ghetto promises. I know that's not PC anymore, but um, that one closed. The one I went to, but. I did outpatient rehab there. So I, so it was not expensive. And I was like, wow, what a deal. Like, I can't believe this like run down disgusting place with the, with the basketball net that's broken is like where all the celebrities go. And then someone's like, Hey idiot. That's the nice promises. Like we're at the ghetto promises. Um, but I loved it. I loved it. And, um, I, loved recovery and my only problem was that I did not believe that alcoholism and addiction were the same thing. Well, how so, old were you? I was 30. Okay. Um, and so I, I did not think they were the same thing, but I went to AA and I did the deal and I really liked it and I had a sponsor and I was doing steps. And then on November 17th ish, it occurred to me that that they were definitely not the same thing. And since I was a drug addict and not an alcoholic, I could go out and just have an innocent glass of wine, which I did on November 18th. And I had that great glass of wine, which wasn't that great. And then I had like two more bottles of wine. And then I ended up taking four and a half hits of ecstasy and concluding that, well, first I concluded, oh, oh, alcohol is a gateway drug. Cause people would always say that. And I would say no, because I did Coke all the time. I didn't get drunk and do Coke. I, I did Coke and then I got drunk to kind of right. come down. Right. And so then I, I realized, I was like, oh, okay, it's a gateway drug, so I can't drink because then I'll do drugs. And then a couple years or months or whatever into sobriety, I realized, oh, I've, I've always been an alcoholic too. I just didn't, I was in denial. I was surrounded by alcoholics. Like I didn't understand that it, that it wasn't normal to constantly be wasted and constantly drive drunk and do all of those things. So it took that night for me to realize. And that was the relapse night that you were, that I wanted. Yeah. So what exactly, what, do you remember any details of it? Was there anything really funny in it or no? 
not only do I remember details, but it's like in Party Girl. Is it? So I was just recently refreshed. Oh, and it's a story. I have a storytelling show. It's a story. I think I just told it the most recent show. It's a great story. So I decide that I want to drink. And I've, I'm like that person who tells everybody I'm sober. And so, you know, I'm like the girl who I would go to a restaurant and be like, can I have a Diet Coke? I mean, I would have a drink, but I'm a total cokehead. And if you give me a drink, then the cut to like five in the morning and I want to kill myself and the birds are tripping. And like the waiter's like, okay, this is on the house. Um, so I just told everyone. And so this disgusting guy, he's an agent, not an Asian, an agent, asks me out at this party. Um, my little addict brain goes, wait a minute, I could totally drink with this guy. Like this guy doesn't know me. Um, this is the perfect plan. And so he's disgusting. And he says to me, Hey, um, I could cook you dinner on Saturday night. And I know that that's agent speak for, um, I could bring you to my mansion and you'll probably have sex with me because it is a mansion and I am a powerful agent. And I know this and I don't care. I'm like, I am going to drink. And so I drink, I, so I go over and I go, yeah, you know how I said I was sober. Well, fuck that. Do you have any wine? And he's thrilled to death and he gives me wine. And we have that whole conversation where he goes, you're so not an alcoholic. I mean, look, like you're barely even, you're drinking so slowly. I was like, I know. I'm so not an alcoholic. I can't believe these people have convinced me that I that I'm an alcoholic. And then I end up getting, you know, smashed. And then later I'm kind of lying on his like couch. And he says to me, I don't feel bad about giving you alcohol, but I feel bad about the drugs. And I remember kind of like opening my eyes and going, Drugs? Like, oh, did you did you roofing me? Like, what are you talking about? And he's holding out his hand and there's pills of ecstasy in it. And I, and I was trying to say, Oh wow. Ecstasy. I can't do that because I'm a drug addict, but I couldn't say it because I had already taken it by the time I was going to say it. So you had taken the pills out of his hand, taken them. And you're, and all you're thinking is I shouldn't have taken this pill. Well, I'm like trying to say the sentence, I can't do drugs because I'm a drug addict. And I say like, I can't. And by then I've grabbed a pill and put it in my mouth and swallowed it. So that was, that was my night. And then with X, you're like, always like, oh, I don't feel it. Because 20 minutes later, I didn't feel it. That's why I ended up taking four and a half. Right. And it was probably a very profound and crazy ecstasy experience. It wasn't. Ecstasy never worked on me. The, The only drug that really worked on me was Coke. I did do heroin once and I loved it and that, that worked on me. But um, like pot never really, never really worked. Really? That's interesting. I, I find that to be very interesting, how that works, period. How different drugs, you know, affect people, neuro, neuro, I guess neurochemically, neurobiologically. Or neurologically, yeah. Just neurologically, is it? I guess, it's yeah. Like, it sounds smarter. Well, weed... I think neurobiologically sounds smarter than neurologically, but I don't know. Um, but I mean, weed affected me so much and, and Coke like was like, just like torture for me. I would do Coke and I would feel like in pain, like I shouldn't be taking this drug. Heroin was total pleasure. And I, and I think I took ecstasy like five times. And every time I took ecstasy, it was like a mind blowing, full on psychedelic sensory explosion. Like, I, I don't know why I only did it five times. I think it was just like, I knew it was something I couldn't do casually. I knew I could right. never like survive an ecstasy lifestyle. Like, I don't know how I thought I could survive a heroin lifestyle, but it's different. <laughs> you know, it's different. Well, it is. You don't meet a lot of people who do ecstasy 
every day and night for years. And you do meet a lot of people like that with heroin. Right. I mean, with ecstasy, like, I remember I was in college at Purchase, and Purchase was just this crazy... Have you ever been to SUNY Purchase? Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, I've heard of it, for sure. It's this crazy drug addict school, like... uh you know, like the kids are all, kids are getting kicked out for doing heroin there. Every you know, it's just like an artist school. And I remember I was like with this bunch of of like this kid who like thought of himself as some sort of like pimped out you know like drug dealer. He was like eighteen years old and he was a goofy kid who had a lot of weed and all the, the all you know you're a kid but you think something's happening that's not happening and everyone's like dancing on his couches and he thought he was like Hugh Hefner of purchase or something. And right. he and he gave me some ecstasy and it was just like I don't know, it was a full on experience. You know, I, I still I'm forty four years old now and I was like that night was a real crazy experience. And um I don't know. Like, I don't know my point. My point, I think, is that ecstasy is like, a, to me, like Chris tripped all over the place. You know what I mean? He like candy flipped and did all that shit. Every time I did ecstasy, I like thought I was falling in love. I thought I was having like these profound experiences on it. Because I think it is that kind of a drug. It's supposed to be that kind of like. It is. That is, that is the advertising. It. It's supposed to do like you were the perfect ecstasy test case. It sounds like I know. I you feel kind neurobiology. of neurobiology. My neurobiology was perfect for ecstasy. I feel like stupid that I was. I was because like you hear about the um, like the Texas trials where they had like where therapy therapists were giving MDMA to the to the couples so they could have this kind of experience. And literally I did it five times and every time I did it I had like I fell in love, I saw the end of the universe, I felt like crazy sensory pleasure shit. It was just like it's just funny. You know, now I do this podcast about, you know, drug addiction and still my ecstasy experience was like pretty profound somehow. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, the brains are so weird. You know, I'm a very hyper, uh, you know, focused, active person. And so you would think that cocaine, I mean, people constantly have said to me like, oh, my God, I can't imagine what you were like on cocaine. But the truth is, I think these very heavily wired people, things like coke and meth kind of chill us out they they had the opposite effect that you know they don't really get us going you know i would do so much coke that i would be sitting on my couch kind of writing that shitty screenplays unable to move because i was just like uh i just i'm shaking it's freaky you know it's interesting because i feel like i'm like crazy high neurotic you know what i mean and when i did coke it pushed me the wrong way and when i took pills i was like i'm home my body is right. My head is right. When I took heroin, I was like, oh, my God. I finally have slowed down to a place. It's just funny. And weed, the same thing. It's just really funny how uh, how drugs can affect different people differently. So how did you come off of that relapse? The ex- Did you have sex with the agent? No. That's how gross he was. Yeah. You didn't, uh, you didn't have the full-on uh, love reaction to the ecstasy. It barely hit you. No. Nothing happened. If ecstasy, if my neurobiology, I'm going to keep saying that, had been yours, I probably would have had sex with this disgusting agent. But I, it wasn't, and he was just seemed grosser by the second. And um, I left at like 5 a.m. and thought, 
did that thing where I was like, well, nobody really needs to know about this. Right. You know, I do not need to tell my sponsor. And I, I'm going to take, um, I just, I had six and a half months. I, I had just taken like a six month chip and, and that was what I was thinking. I go to sleep and then I wake up and I talk to my best friend from rehab, this guy, uh, Justin, who was living back in uh, Georgia. And he tells me that he smoked pot and I ended up telling him and then I ended up calling my sponsor and then I ended up going to a meeting that night and I still remember the meeting and, um, this meeting called Sundowners and I, 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 I identified as a newcomer and I, you know, just had that one night. And that was it. That was it. Amazing. And then since then you've been totally clean and sober. Since then I've been totally clean and sober. I've had to take opiates twice. Um, and I hated both times I had, um, sciatica, like unbearable back pain. And then I did this like eye operation that's like LASIK, but apparently a million times more painful. And I woke up and had like stabbing pains in my eye. Like somebody was stabbing, carving my eye out with a knife and I had to take Vicodin and I took it for a day. It was like, this is gross. You didn't like how it felt. No. And I loved opiates before. So it's just, that's, what's interesting is again, this brain chemistry thing you know, I guess the older I get and, and the cleaner my system is, the more it just, I felt nauseous. I felt crazy. I remember I went to a movie cause I was just like, I'm so high. I don't know what to do. And so I went, I, this arc light, this movie theaters near my house. I like, oh, it's hot, really hot, sunny day. And I walk to the arc light. I get all this popcorn and milk duds and a diet Coke. And I sit down and I, and I eat it all. And then I forget that like, you go to a movie to, to watch the movie. I thought you just went to eat popcorn <laughs> and milk duds yeah. and a Diet Coke. And as soon as I was in, I got up and I walked out. And I was like, wait, I'm forgetting something. Like, that's how out of it I was. And then I saw this guy I know from meetings. Oh, I was like, he's getting on hot. Like, it was just crazy. I'm like, this is disgusting. No, no more. I don't care that I'm in pain. Wow. So then yeah. you just didn't do another. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Do, you, do you ever have drug dreams now or never? I, I have drinking dreams. Oh, wait, no, I did have a drug dream really recently. Yeah, I had a heroin dream, which is weird because, like I said, I only did it once. Um, but my, the, over the 18 years, the dreams are always pretty much the same, which is that I'm somewhere and I'm drinking. And I'm like, this is weird. Why am I drinking when I'm sober? And somehow there's some explanation in the dream for how these two things can be existing or I've been like secretly sort of drinking the whole time or something like that. And then, um, but, but I recently had one where I, I did heroin with my friend, Joe, who's this big recovery advocate guy. And we're working together on this website. And we did heroin. And I woke up, I was like, Oh my God, I'm just so glad I'm sober because I feel like I'm sober so long. I forget to be grateful about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I'm only sober, uh, three years and four months or something. And, uh, and I forget, I forget that I was a drug addict all the time. And I don't mean I forget, I just can't believe it. You know what I I mean? Like I have two children. I, I work really hard. We live, I live in the suburbs. Like my life is, my life is so far from what I ever expected it to be both good and foreign. That like it's right. hard to remember that I used to shoot dope, and then once in a while though I'll look at my I, I have so many like old uh, scars on my arms, and I'll mm. look at them and I'm like oh yeah, or you'll see a movie and you're mm. like oh yeah that I used to do that, but more than anything it's because of dopey, you know what I mean? I think I, I have right. all these drug dreams. I have drug dreams all the time, 
And I think it's because of Dopey. I think it's because I'm in right. touch with so many addicts. I hear so many stories, like people who are struggling, I hear from, and also meetings. You know what I mean? You go to meetings and you hear, you know, that serious desperation and you hear about people going out. Um, so it's always fresh in my mind, which I'm sure is good for me. It's just weird when you, you know, the marriage of gratitude and time is weird. Do you know what I mean? It is. It is. Because the weird thing for me, and this is so lucky in so many ways, is I, you say cocaine to me, and I immediately go to birds chirping, want to kill myself, the awful, jittery, horrible, by myself nights. I never go to the glory days. And like, that's just a lucky thing in my brain. Um, so that no part of me ever, ever, ever says when I'm in pain, um, emotional pain, not physical pain, oh, going out would solve this, a drink would solve this, because I, I, I can immediately access that memory. And yet, it feels like it was a different person at the same time, so that I'm, and I also have this, like, my version of self-hatred, and it's a lot better, you know, over the years, but my version of it is always, well, if I did it, it's not that hard. It's not hard to be sober. If I, if I wrote books, can't be that hard to write books, right, right. you know? Um, and that's partially just the family I come from sort of treats anything like that. Like nothing's good enough. But I forget, I forget how lucky I am. I forget that this was not meant to be my life, that there was nothing about my life that indicated it, would get, it was going to be like this. Meaning what? Meaning good or meaning bad? Meaning good. Right. I think that with the, the the circus of events that has to happen for an addict to get clean, you could, it's like it's you know it's like it's hard to reproduce or impossible to reproduce. That's why when people say the cliche of uh, "I know I have another run, but I don't know if I have another recovery," it's totally true because like right. who knows. Like how, and also everybody's dying now. You know what I mean? Like, right. who knows how you get? Um, I don't know. There's people that listen to the show who are, uh, and I hear from them all the time. And there, there's this group of people who have just started relapsing. They had a few months, and now they're relapsing. And I tell them, you know, go to a meeting. I, I, I tell everyone just to go to detox. You know that you can't really do anything without okay. starting over, clearing the slate, or at least I never could. If you're like shooting meth and you're shooting dope and you have a habit, you know, going to meetings is, I don't know. I don't think it's going to help. Yeah. I think you need yeah. to go away. I think you need to clear the decks. I mean, that's in my, but then the, the point is I don't even know how to give anyone advice. You know, if they're not asking me for advice, if someone says to you, I'm relapsing, you know, right. what do you say like, I want to help them. You know what I mean? I want to, like, tell them what to do. But that's not really my position unless they say, Dave, what do you think I should do, right? Totally. I, I mean, I I get emails a lot. I, I've never gotten the, like, I'm relapsing. But I get, you know, and because I'm program, um, not that I work a great program, but since I would not be sober without Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what I always suggest. And I've, have, I've met strangers at meetings. I've set them up with people in other cities and stuff like that. Um, but, but, you know, and I, I have a friend right now. I have a girl who I met because she read my book and then she got sober. We did meetings. So she's awesome. And then one day she called me, this was like, whatever, like six years ago. And she goes, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. And, and I, 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 I 
I don't know. I believed her. You know, what do I know? And then she started the last three weeks to be like, you know what I am and I need to come. And I'm like, okay, cool. Meet me at the meeting tomorrow. And and she doesn't come, but she's, she's doing that thing where now what we've decided is we're going to have dinner on Thursday night. I'm like, since you keep not coming to the meetings, what if we just go to dinner? And, and we just, you, you make some movement towards this thing by hanging out with me. But my most important thing is like to make people not feel judged and just to let them do it on their own schedule. Right. Because that's what I wanted. That's what I needed. No, I totally understand. I I had no, I had no chance when anyone ever told me what to do. I did the opposite. I only, I only wound up getting clean when I knew there was there was no more living the other way for me, and I, right. I. But you can't tell anybody that, and I'm not even sure I believe that. I think there are lots of people who can get the um, like the bolt of lightning without really you know mixing it up in the pot. You know what I mean? They can get it just randomly going to one meeting. It can hit them. They can get it. You know. And then I also have a bunch of people who listen to the show who tell me that I preach AA way too much. Like, right. like they don't want to hear about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's interesting. But I, I, I mean, I was a heroin addict. I am a heroin addict, and I never would have gotten clean if I hadn't gone to AA and worked the steps. And our audience right. is a bunch of fucking addicts. And if they want to fucking be clean, that was an easy way for. I, when I say easy, that was a, it was a nice plan <laughs> that guided me in the right direction. You know, and, right. and that's the way I like to talk about it. And I hate to be preachy, and I hated the idea of going to meetings forever. Of course, of course. So you were thirty. I mean, you were thirty when you got on the path. Um, yeah. And, and what did and it, it seem yeah. like to you before that? Like, what was your lifestyle like? What were you doing before you got clean? Nothing. A whole lot of nothing. I was, um, you know, pretending that I was going to be like this great writer, but you know, I always say my accountant didn't consider me a writer. I told everyone I was, but I was making ends meet barely by doing coverage of scripts, which is, you know, basically doing book reports on scripts and telling, um, production companies if they should buy them or not. And I was such a bitter screenwriter that I just told the company they should not buy anything because I was pissed. These other writers had agents and were getting their scripts like, you know, sent to production companies. So, so I was just kind of circling the drain doing cooking by myself. Um, I, you know, the night I discovered that I didn't have to be around a bunch of yammering yahoos that I was doing coke with. I never did it around people again. Where'd you grow up? Marin County up okay. north. Okay. Um, in California. And so I, um, you know, and I come from this like very successful family where everything went to Harvard and, and I was, you know, this disaster. Jewish, a Jewish and family, right? Nice Jewish nice family. Nice Jewish family, yeah. yeah. All right. We're, yeah, we're fellow Jews. And then I, um, thought that AA, I'd been taken to AA. I thought it sucked. I thought it looked like, the most depressing place on earth where you'd never have fun again. And then when I got to the point where I was like, I want to die and I don't want to kill myself, um, possibly rehab in AA is, is better than dying. I doubt it, but it's possible. And I can always, I can always go to rehab in AA. And if it's as bad as I 
pretty sure it will be. Then I can kill myself, but I can't do it the other way around. And so that's, that's what I did. And I was totally shocked. You know, I think that's the major misconception of the people who, who really deride AA. They think we all went skipping in, holding hands, holding daisies and going like, I'm so excited to go to AA. No, we were all like, this fucking sucks. Are you kidding me? Right. Like, and then, yeah, that's that's the greatest thing. Are you kidding me? You know, all you of us. That's the funniest me? thing. We all walk in there like, are you fucking kidding me? And then we're now ten years later, three years later, or six months later, we're like, you have to go to a meeting. It's like crazy. I know. It's really crazy. It's a, like it's a real invasion of the body snatchers kind of thing. But it's <laughs> but it saved our lives. It's so fucking weird. It's weird. Because the thing is, it's like if you can get those defenses down and if you can be as desperate, um, you know, I think if you're you're going to kill yourself or I think most people, they get sober. They go to AA because they they've thought about killing themselves. It's the only reason you'd ever go to fucking AA. And um, and then you start to hear things and they're like, wait a minute. They're talking about these thoughts I've had that I've never told. I didn't even know I had that thought. And you start to feel better. And I had been so isolated that just being around people felt right. so good. And, um, you know, and I was someone who, who just, I, I'm such a, like, I, it's ironic that I'm saying this cause I do not work a good AA program, go to a meeting, like go to one meeting a week at the most. I'm like not a good sponsor, never call my sponsor, you know, but, at the, but I am so naturally set up for it, success there. Cause I love writing. I love sharing. I love telling everyone my secrets. Right. I love being around people. Like, I'm just like, I didn't have a bad idea about God. Um, I was looking for a social group. So I, it sort of, um, really, I was tailor made for you were predisposed. In that yeah. You were, yeah, you, your, exactly. neuro, your, your bio neurology was totally <laughs> set for alcohol. Now Anonymous. you're switching it. My neurobiology. Yeah. Your neurobiology. Yeah. yeah. I, maybe bio neurology sounds smarter. I, I, I swear to God, it doesn't. It sounds like a fake word. Bio Yeah. Or neurobiology. I, say? You said no, neurology. Here's what I, here's the word that makes me feel smart when I talk about the neuroplasticity of the brain. Right. That's that's a I Chris thing. The show had a lot more idiocy and a lot more brilliance when Chris was alive. I have to promise you that, and I apologize. Okay. I apologize. There's, there's definite idiocy, and I'd say there's definite brilliance going on. Well, I appreciate that. Let me. I have questions, though. I've 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 totally not looked at my notes at all. I've just yeah. been. But you you wrote your book. And when did you jump into the whole crazy podcast circuit? I th- I'm really bad at, t- at timelines. It's okay. Like I don't need to know I time. Just give me, give me a ballpark. I don't know. I think I've had the podcast for three years. Um, but it wasn't always Light Hustler. No. I started this. I started it was called After Party Pod because I'd started a site called After Party. Right. And then I sold that website. And uh-huh. then when I left that website, I still owned the podcast. And so then briefly I called it Recover Girl because that's a great name. But then I started this company called Light Hustler. But why did you crazy. give up Recover Girl? Recover Girl is a good name. It is a good name. But basically I started a company where I, you know, help coach writers. I have this whole online school. Um, I have a storytelling show and it was insane to have a podcast that sort of feeds people into those things that doesn't have the same name. Right. But can I tell you something that you might get angry at me for? You you hate Light Hustler. That's fine. It's just not a good name. I, I, I don't love it. I don't love it, but it's what it is. No, you can, we can do better. 
Recover Girl is a sick name. It's a good name. uh, After Party, it's a good name. I I understand your total point, and I don't disagree with you, but it's like Recover Girl doesn't doesn't say, like, I'm a school for all of these things. It doesn't say I'm a storytelling show for more people than me. You know, it it, it alienates men. It alienates people not in recovery. Right, no, I agree. I agree. I agree. I think Recover Girl is a great... It's a great blog name. It's a great podcast name. Totally. Uh, what a, like I need a name for everything. Light hustler, like you're hustling light. I like the idea. I know. I'm not. I don't disagree with you. I went through so many freaking names, and then about once a year, I go, "I'm going to change this. It sucks." And everybody, I, I come up with a bunch of names that everyone says are not as good. But so, by the way, I'd be thrilled. It would be a total nightmare to change everything. Right. Who but wants to change everything? No, no, I know, I know. I just, I remember because I followed you. We I followed know. you uh, from the beginning, you know, Good. like like we were, we were following you and, um, and we had you slated to come on Dopey in the very, very nascent Dopey era, the dopiest yes. era perhaps. And I don't know what happened. Like there was some kind of scheduling conflict and you didn't come on. And Chris never got angry about stuff like that. But he got mad when you didn't he come did? on. Well, he, he was like, what the fuck? Because I think we were excited because you were like a name in recovery. And Chris Aww. was all about recovery. And Chris was like, what the fuck? Anna David, like, she's blowing us off. And I was like, all right. And I was sure you wrote Party Girl. And all I could think of was the Parker Posey movie. And I was like, we got to get her <laughs> on. We got to make this, this happen. This was Parker. I loved Parker Posey. I just did. But- um, so, yes, but here's also the thing, is everybody and their mother started a recovery podcast and started asking, and not in a conscious way, but asking me to go on because mine had been the only one for like at least a year. And and I, and I then most of them were like th- things that would be three episodes and then never post again. Right. And so I, I could never tell, I'm right. so can't, who to take seriously and who not to. Right. So I think that like, and I have this bad habit or I don't know if it's a good habit or a bad habit, but in my life, like people are totally guilty until proven innocent. Like, like it takes, it it takes some work, especially, and and especially in this like recovery advocacy world. Like I feel like when people try to get to me and like, it takes a minute for me to not think they're a scumbag and to not be suspicious of them. Right. Um, That's interesting because when people try to get to me, I'm totally like honored. I'm like, okay, what can I do? I I think it's because I'm a waiter and you're like a big shot recovery person. No, I think I think it could be a man woman thing. Right. And I think it could be like um, I don't know what it what it is. I I when I'm I'm like just a total extremist. Like when I love people, you're in for life, and I fucking love you, but. But I'm not one of those people that's just super into everybody who comes to her. No, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I'm just, I, I guess I'm a little bit like, uh, you know, narcissistic or something that when someone wants me to go on their podcast, I'm like, I'll, I'm like, this will, I'll finally show how smart I am and how funny I am. And like, I get like, but not that many people ask me, you know, like, like I'm going on this dude's podcast uh, this week. It's like some total, drug podcasts like we we birthed a bunch of just straight up drug podcasts and they literally like last one episode but like i'm down to do it because 
you know, I guess because we needed people to come on so much and because I think it's cool. You know what I mean? I think it's cool that I get to go. What's a straight up drug podcast? What does that mean? Like, I think it's just about drugs. I don't think it's about recovery. But by the way, would you come on mine? Of course. Even Even though you hate the name? I th- listen, I hate the name because I know you could come up with a better name. Dude, okay, you can come on my podcast anytime if you can come up with a better name. Well, well let's just spitball for a second here. Like, it should be about storytelling. You know, The Moth somehow... The, That's a horrible name, and it works, Well, okay? it's a horrible name, but it works. Light Hustler is a horrible name that doesn't work. You think of okay. Hustler, you think of Light... You know, like, you need something, you know, I understand. The There's something Here's like the namaste about it, like recognizing the light within. But then you're trying to be street and being hustly. It's like some kind of namaste hustler scenario, right? It's like well, that's high. That's exactly it. Right. If, well, so like spiritual gangster, you think that works though, right? Uh, I think it works for T-shirts, and I don't like it. You know, it's not my massively successful company. Yeah, but it's like it's not that cool. I mean, I hate to say this, but but Dopey is the coolest name in the history of podcast names. It's pretty good. It's pretty fucking good. good. I hate to say it. It's like it's very. I've been in bands my whole life. I I cannot come up with a fucking band name to save my life. And we got really lucky with Dopey. We can come up with something. You're not gonna. It's like. It's elusive. The name game is an elusive concept. It is. It's weird. It's weird. I mean, it's, yeah, because you hear a name and you go, like, like Recover Girl is one of those names. You just go, yeah. It's great. And that girl, that girl who I know you know, she's so cool, that addictionary girl. Yeah, Meg. Megan. That's a great name. You hear that and you go, ah, it's a fucking good name. It's snappy. The addictionary is is snappy. Oh, you're like competitive. You're like, uh, Dopey's better. But like, no, 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 no. Don't go. That's a great name. You don't. And I know that. Who and are I, you talking I, to when it came up? Oh, 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 that, that you knew her? No, 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 no. The, when you came up with Light Hustler, what was the. I was talking to hundreds of people. Everyone in my life had to hear about it. Of course. So what were the other contenders? We we had a bunch that were like this. It was the best one. It was like a, um, you know, combine a spiritual world word with a cool word, and and then then about maybe six months ago, I decided I wanted to rename everything Spiritual City, and I was all into it. And then and then that didn't happen. But here's the thing: now I've done all this stuff. We released a best selling book under Light Hustler Publishing. You know, was it Darren he, Prince's book? Whose book? Yeah, is it? do you know? Did Darren come on? No, he, he'll come on eventually, I bet. But no, I, I pay best. attention to your life. I know. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So, so you know, it's like, it's whatever. It would be a big deal to change the name. Um, Don't change but, the name. I, I See, this is the thing, Anna. Let me give you my advice. Now, you understand yeah, I'm please. an incredibly successful waiter with a fair to middling addiction podcast that a couple people like. As long as we're clear about this. But I'm good I at this you have stuff. more downloads than I do. So, Dude, you know. I get a lot of downloads, but I, we don't make any money. You know? It's like, it's very what sad. What are your downloads? What are my downloads? Per episode yeah. per month or total downloads? Well, what, what do you want to know? Total, because that will make me feel good. Because I'll definitely have more since I've had an older podcast. Let's just say, and this is important for the Dopey Nation to hear this. We've really left the Dopey Nation out of this conversation, which I don't usually do. But let's just say by March, we will have one million downloads. 
shallow. I know. How many do you have? Like two million? By March. How do you, how can you predict the future? Well, we have nine hundred and thirty nine hundred and forty one thousand oh. now, and we get eighteen thousand a week. So really, by the middle of January, we should hit a million. But like, I'm you just have, you have way more than me. That sucks for me. What do you mean? Because you have way more than me. That's way more. That's because you have a terrible name. Dude, get me a new name. But here's the thing: the podcast is just a piece of my. That's my point, Anna. This is my point. Let me just say this real quick. Yeah. You keep Light Hustler as the umbrella company. You do not change the uh, the the publishing company. You don't change the 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 point. Hustling Light is an interesting concept, but the I think you go back to Recover Girl Podcast as a branch of Light Hustler International, and Light Hustler International is a better name than Light Hustler. You're not totally wrong. I'm not. I, I'm like good at this stuff. You can't change a podcast name back to what it wants. Yes, you can. You can do whatever you want. You're Anna David. You're an entrepreneur. You're a sex expert. You're a recovering person. <laughs> But here's the thing. I was trying to get away from the recovery thing because all of these right. people came in and took it. Get away from and it. Then, get away. No, that's and, smart. That's smart. And you can't with a podcast called Recover Girl. No, no. Recover Girl, it's like Cover Girl. It's like uh, it's like a comic that. book superhero. It's good. But listen, I agree with you because I was talking to my buddy, this guy. He's kind of like the de facto guest producer of Dopey, my friend Sam. And he's told me that no matter what, no matter how big Dopey gets, it will never be big enough to earn a living from because it's about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. I I don't know. I think that podcasts, I think we're still in the very burgeoning stages of it and mm-hmm. I think you know, it's one of those things like don't you always feel like oh shit I got to this too late like I feel like that about everything oh I got to book writing too late oh I got to recovery too late I got to everything too late and I felt like that with podcasting but I actually think it's different I think we're going to look back in 10 years and be like oh my god we were totally part of the early stages so I think it's impossible to predict what will happen right. and I also think having a niche what that means, I mean, make a living is a, is a big thing. There are very few people who make a living from a podcast, um, but they're like what we do. So what what's happened with me is I have all these courses. Which do you have anybody who, in Dopey Nation who could um, who would who wants to write books? By the I want to write a book. Okay, well, I got a, I got this whole school, so I have a coaching program, and it's kind of a long. It's called All the Right Moves. You know, there's like the ten. But wait, hold on. Before you even say this, there's like what? a billion people in the Dopey Nation that are trying to put podcasts together. They're trying to put these things together. So lay yeah. it all out. Lay out the Light Hustlers, Light Hustler International School, Light Hustler International, um, the subsidiary all the right moves. So I have, first of all, I have a free course on how to create a podcast. So any Dopey Nation listener needs to go to podcastingforwriters.com right now. I saw that. And download that course completely free. Nice. Um, then I have, I just have all this stuff. I have audience building for writers. I have newsletters for writers, websites for writers, promotion for writers, social media for writers. And in my opinion, you get all of that together and then you start writing because I know all these people who sort of read a blog post and it goes viral and then hundreds of thousands of people read their stuff and they have no way to capture that audience and, and they never do it again and they 
they had the luck, like they had their break of a lifetime and it, and it passed. So I think you set all this stuff up and then you go and you do your writing. See, that's what I've but, done. I've set up a podcasting yeah. empire. I need a you course have. on writing for, for amazing podcasters. Writing for amazing podcasters? Like you have podcasting for writers. I right. need a writing course for somebody who's an amazing podcaster already. Like my podcasting skills are like pretty amazing. Okay, I think that is too niche. I don't think you're going to find um, podcasters. We're not a big enough community. No, no, I'm not I, I saying mean, that that's a good course you could offer. I'm saying that I need to take that course. Well, you could take one. Of, well, see, the thing about my writing courses is All the Right Moves is a coaching program for 10 people at a time. It's like application only that you and, and you're trying to get an agent and a publisher. Right. So and then we have Light Hustler Publishing. You know what I should do? I, I, you keep, keep talking. You keep keep pitching, and then no, I'll tell you what I want to do. Keep talking while you're not even listening. I'm listening. Um, I'm dreaming, and I'm coming up with a million ideas. Talk, please. Yeah. I'm sorry, I apologize. So, 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 I forget my point, but but um, you were just no, you were you were you were promoting the the next level in Light Hustler International. All the right moves. How people can they they do the ten day retreat thing? Keep going. I don't want to interrupt. Oh my that. god! Oh my god! You literally made up words. There's okay, so there's a t- it's a it's ten people at a time a six month program. I'm just launching this thing called three months to your book. Nice, and it's and we okay you like that name? It's yourbook3months.com, and we in three months we have conversations with you and we deliver it to you a first draft of your book. I like that. Uh, people really yeah. it's like it's like getting in shape in ninety days or getting sober or something. I like exactly. a time a timeline is good for us. Yourbook3months.com. And that's part of all the right moves. And it's the tagline is don't let another year go by without writing that book you've always said you would. And it walks you through how we do this for you. And we're pretty clear about, like, we're not handing you back a book you should go publish. We're handing you back a first draft, which is the hardest part um, for any writer to get. You know, it's the blank page. So we give you the first draft. and You can go, you can hire us to redo it and, you know, rewrite it and publish it for you. You can go and publish it yourself. You can go and find someone else. So that's that's the plan. All right. Now, let me, I have two things. I have, yeah. Chris, before he died, and I, mostly Chris, wrote a book proposal for the Dopey book, the dark comedy of drug addiction uh, Dopey book. Do you, can we send you the pitch? Maybe you'll want to deal with it. Yeah, but here's the thing. This is why you don't want me for that is we charge a shitload of money to oh, publish yeah. your book. No, we don't want that. No. Yeah. So, cause I'm not a, like, I, I, I don't acquire books. Like we're, we, we publish, like we do like for entrepreneurs with money to burn. We're like, cool. We'll go do this for you. Right. Um, it's like a service. It's a service, yeah. All right. Well, that's. Um, I think that's a great service for anybody out there who wants to get their book published. They should go to give me the give me the one. Well, I think the easiest thing is for people to just email me. I answer every email. What's your email? Because you said they you want people to email you if they have something for you. Yeah, Anna at annadavid.com. There you go, and you answer all emails. I mean, I don't answer perverted ones. Do you get a lot of perverted emails? <laughs> You know what I get a lot of? I, I, well, I used to answer sex questions on TV, so obviously I got a ton of perverted emails. Um, 
but like what I get are emails from like, like I, I, I got one today from, I, from people who think their story is so interesting. Like this guy writes me and he's like, Hey, um, I have an amazing story. Everyone tells me I should write a book. Um, can I send you chapters? And I run him back. I go, yeah, I've got this coaching thing. But and he writes me back. He goes, look, I don't want to be sold on a course. I just want someone to read. But it's like, dude, do you know, like not to be completely obnoxious. Like I, I, I hate doing one-on-one coaching. So I charge don't, this is insane. And I'm not just a thousand dollars an hour. Um, because I didn't want to do it. And one, this like heiress in rehab wanted me to be her recovery writing coach. And so I said, it's a thousand dollars an hour. And she said, yes. And this fucking guy, how many hours me, did she hire you for? I, I like, we did met like four times. That's amazing. I know. I know. It's that crazy thing where you say an outrageous number and sometimes people are going to say yes, you know? And then I've got this guy who thinks his story is so interesting, angry at me because I won't go and give him my free work, you know? Well, yeah. That's, well, that's like me telling you you should... Uh, you it's should, not like that. Well, it's, it's similar. Not like that. It's similar. It's not. It's not the same school because I like you. I can tell you'd be like write a really good and funny thing. And you're not saying to me, my my story is so amazing. You'd be lucky to read it. But I did tell you that I think I'm an amazing podcaster. Do you think that was too? Do you think that was too full of myself? No, I don't. I think you. I think you know your strengths and your limitations. I have lots of limitations. That's important. Okay, so Party Girl, the audiobook, Anna just reacquired the rights. And how can people download it? Do you think dopey listeners listen to audiobooks? Definitely. Yes, of course. They listen to podcasts. Definitely. So it's so good. And I, are, is your audience mostly male? Do you know? No, I'd say it's 50 50. Okay. Well, I always do tell men this we're like, why don't I read a book called Party Girl? It opens with a threesome. Okay. And it's really funny. And Dr. Drew has called it, who's been a previous podcast guest, right? Uh-huh. Um, calls it the most accurate depiction of addiction and recovery he's ever seen. Wow. That's quite a, yep. that's a great blurb. And, and you are also and called Truman Capote, the Truman. elegance of Truman Capote on, uh, by Jerry Stahl. Yep. Well, it's I'm really a good book. Just go to partygirlaudio.com. I'm going to listen to it. You'll like it. And if it's, if you're not an audible subscriber yet, you actually can get the book for free. I am an audible Literally. subscriber. Okay, you then cannot get the book for free, but people listening who are not Audible subscribers can. Yeah, well, I'm going to check it out, and I recommend you guys checking it out too. Now, do you want to be the first person to play the Dopey Podcast stash word game? I don't know. Can we try it, and then I tell you? Well, we're going to play it. It's like Okay, let's try it. Okay, this is the idea of the game. Have you ever seen uh, $25,000 Pyramid? Like when I was a kid. Or Password? I can already tell I'm not going to be good at this game. That's okay. okay. The better you are, the funnier it is. But also, if you suck at it, it could be really funny. The idea, okay. we're going we're gonna to time 30 seconds. Okay. I'm going to describe a word, and you're yeah. going to tell me what the word is. Okay, here you go. You ready? So we're yeah. going to start now. Uh, when people are using, like, spray bottles to get high, they are... What? Huffing. Yes. When you take uh, LSD and you see something that isn't there, you are having a... Hallucination. Yes. A long uh, glass object used to smoke marijuana is called a... uh, It is another word for the crystals on weed. Um, People like to smoke it. It's powder. It's light green. It's very crystally. Crack? 
No, it's uh, it's also Keith Richards' nickname. Keith Richards' nickname. It's what it's what really insider Rolling Stone people call Keith. I just, you could pass if you so want to pass. I've been sober so long. I don't know shit. It's okay. Pass. Okay, give me five words for heroin. Okay, smack. Mm-hmm. Um, um, junk. Yeah. Um, That's thirty seconds. You got. Uh, one, two, three. You only got three answers, but that's the. the how, how many questions? I don't know. It's three questions. Three. You miscounted. I got the first three for sure. You I got huffing, that. hallucination, and bong. Yeah. That was it. So I only missed one. Listen, I'm. I'm just. Listen, you're the first person to play. Maybe nobody will beat three in thirty what seconds. Was, what was the Keith Richards one? Keith. It's called Keith. Yeah, if if you if you take like really high quality, I mean, I'm I'm out of the weed game myself. But before there was this legal weed, if you took high quality bud and you bounced it on a, a silk screen, the crystals would come off, and they would call those Nobody's crystals Keith Stoners will. Yeah, that's too obscure, dude. Stoners oh. will get it. Trust me, I think. You know. Okay. Okay, you this did super fun, dude. Three three words was good. And I had sound effects that I didn't use. You want to hear a sound effect? Yeah. Here. Huh? How about this? So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Anna David, for coming on the show. I think you were great. Thank you. Oh, wait. Is this the sound effect? Yeah, that's just just my sound effect. Um, That was the first sound effect I ever used on the show, too. What do you think? I think there's room for improvement. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Thank you, though, for coming on the show. You were great. It was super fun. It was super fun. And thank you so much for having me. And if you ever want me to go on Light Hustler International, just ask. Uh, you're booked. You're booked. I would appreciate Oh, I guess we've, we worked out the name thing. I'm keeping the name. You're keeping the name until we have another name. And you could, I, I think you should go back to, well, keep the name for now. We'll, we'll come up with something better, though. I feel the same way. Okay, thank you so much. Are we hanging up? We're going to hang up. You, But I say okay. you keep the name forever for the Umbrella Corporation and we change the podcast name. Okay? Thank you. Have a good night. You thank too. you again. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye. So that was extremely cool to have author, addict, and alcoholic in recovery, Anna David, light hustler, entrepreneur, sex expert, blogger, internet superstar, again, Anna David, to call in uh, to uh, tell us a bit about her stuff on Dopey. Um, I've always wanted to write a book. Uh, you've heard about the Dopey book, the pitch book that me and Chris were working on, that Chris put a ton of time and effort into. Uh, he dreamed of having a Dopey book live in rehabs across the country with like story after story of debauchery. And we actually included a bunch of your guys' stories that you emailed in. So keep the stories coming. Email us some stories and send in some voicemails. And uh, this is the literary episode of Dopey. And uh, coming up next, we have this guy who is actually a pretty acclaimed writer. His name is Anthony Boza. He wrote uh, a bunch of books with a bunch of uh, celebrities, including uh, Artie Lang. So I'm going to play this interview with Anthony Boza, but before I do, I just, this show is called Dopey, it's not called fucking Literature Club, and um, I want to play a voicemail from this woman in England. So here is this voicemail, and then Anthony Boza. 
Hey there, Dopey Nation. So, I'm deciding which story do I tell. Do I tell you about the time I went to Mexico to get clean? Do I tell you the story about the experience I had in um, Mardi Gras in New Orleans? Or do I tell you about my first overdose? I'm going for the overdose. So, five months I'd done in, in a rehab in a Western Supermare, which is the rehab capital of the UK, or it was. Um, come out, got a bit of clean time, absent time behind me. Went back up to my old haunt up in Sheffield, where I decided to take a little whiskey. Um, and then I thought, hey, this whiskey feels nice. How about a bit of Xanax on top? So, yeah, did that. Then met up with my... I think he was an ex-boyfriend by then, I don't remember. Um, and we shared a bag of gear, a bag of fire, as you guys call it, freeways, um, two big lads and me, scrawny little girl, fresh out of rehab-ish. Can't remember. This was like 2003. And bang, over did I go. And... It was black. I don't know what um, our departed friend Chris used to really believe about the afterlife, but there was there was no afterlife. There was the South Yorkshire ambulance shaking me, shouting at me, and ruining my buzz. Quite frankly, I was the well. Don't expect anyone to, to don't expect to bring anyone back from a overdose and expect uh, any gratitude. You. You won't. You might more likely to get a slap in the face. So anyway, um, I've just been brought back. I'm highly ungrateful. I'm very annoyed because I was having ever such a nice gouch or so. I thought um, with this big northern paramedic over me, and um, I'm telling him, but you don't understand. You don't understand. I'm clean. I'm clean. He's like, yep. Patently not clean, love. I just brought you back from heroin overdose, which uh, kind of gave me a wake-up call. I refused to go to the hospital with them because I didn't think I needed it. I didn't have any understanding. I, I don't know when Narcan came into existence, but I sure never heard of it before that day. Um, I, so, yeah, I didn't know that you could perhaps need more 20 minutes or so late. I don't know how long they stayed. So when they left, I decided, well, I better not shoot up again tonight. Um, I'll do it on the foil. <clears throat> um, we can smoke gear on the foil over here, like your tar, I suppose. And I uh, went straight into cold turkey. So, yeah, that is my overdose story, my first overdose story. Um, if this one goes down well, I will maybe extend some more. So, stay strong, guys. Reach out and toodles for Chris. So, I'm on the phone with Anthony Boza, a renowned rock and roll journalist and author. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing today? I'm good. I've been tracking this guy down for like seven months, right? At least. I would say so. Yes, it's been a while. You've been very, um, you've really hung in there. No, I appreciate it. No, I'm a persistent motherfucker. It took me, it took me three years to get Artie Lang on the show, but it worked, and I got him on the show. So Good. How was, how was that interview? 
You should listen to it. It's kind of a train wreck, but I think uh, maybe if we get lucky, we'll get a scoop on Artie when he gets out of treatment. Have you heard from him? Uh, no, but I'm going to say this. After writing three books with Artie, I have plenty, I've heard plenty of Artie, so I might not listen to the podcast. Don't be offended. <laughs> I, I would not. Um, yeah, no, I haven't heard from him. I, you know, I just saw his stuff on Twitter, um, and I think he's still in rehab, so... I don't. I don't think he has a phone every day. But um, yeah, no, I haven't heard from him. But good thing that he's in there. He needed it. Totally. He, it's the first rehab I ever heard of that allows the patient to go out and do stand-up gigs, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Might not be the best one then, but you know. <laughs> you never uh, know. You never know what the results could give him. Who knows? You know what I mean? Like, I think addiction and recovery are incredibly mysterious things, and like what works yeah. for one person might not work for another person, and vice versa you know who knows right. um but i want to talk about you a bit i think you're okay. uh, I, i've i've read a bunch of your books and for the dopey nation anthony boza started out as a, a they, they list you on wikipedia as a rolling stone gopher is this true <laughs> that's pretty good i uh i don't know yeah, much. i mean i was i was a i was an intern in the books department uh, that's no longer there and did research for um, when Kurt Cobain killed himself. Uh, they needed a lot of, they needed a book right away. And I was going to be an intern in the magazine department, but um, I got my I got my application in a little late. So I was on the sort of accepted pile for the next bunch of interns. And the books department needed people right away to put out that book. So I ended up working for them and uh, just stuck with it and kind of eventually became a, the research assistant to the librarian and um, did research for writers as well as the people on the business side and then eventually became a, um, an assistant in the music department. Did you, for, uh, did you ever work on the... Music editors. I don't mean to Sorry, interrupt. I'm a terrible interrupter. But uh, right. did you ever work on the Kurt Cobain book? <clears throat> no, that's absolutely how I, what I got. That's what I did, yeah. I, was, I worked on that and then the Jerry Garcia book, the Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll, it was redone in... Uh, I have 19- that. I love that book. Yeah, I worked on version two of that. Um, yeah, I was like an intern there, you know, worked in a bar and just kept my internship because I was like, I can do what they're doing in the music department <laughs> and uh, just kind of stuck with it until I eventually got a job over there. Right on. What I what I read was that you heard an unreleased Eminem freestyle and you were like, this is the guy, this Eminem is going to be something. And they were like, all right, easy there, Anthony Boza. If he ever makes a wave, we'll let you write about him. Is that the true story? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was an interning for, um, I'm sorry, I was already an assistant in the music department at that point, um, working for uh, Joe Levy, who went on to Billboard and other stuff um, eventually. But yeah, I heard basically a friend of mine, Eminem was on the Wake Up Show in LA, freestyling. They they used to have unsigned rappers on, but just like, you know, bit verses and stuff and a buddy of mine who was super into that whole like the whole underground hip hop scene of the 90s would tape those things and, and just loved it and he was like you will like love this dude because he just knew me and knew the kind of stuff that I liked the kind of like specifically white rap that I liked uh-huh. <laughs> and uh so he was like, check this out. And I was, became so obsessed with him that I, I just, I was still very green. And I went into the music editor and was like, this guy's going to be a star. And it's, it's pretty much what he said. He was like, you know, Rolling Stone doesn't really write about a lot of hip hop, let alone unsigned rappers. So keep an eye on him. Thanks for your enthusiasm and come back to me if something happens, you know, and then he got signed by Dre and then, um, 
they're going to let me write a short story, like a short 300-word thing about the My Name Is video. It was, like, all over MTV. Right. And then um, we got wind from Interscope about how many copies were getting moved of, the, of his debut album the first week and how big it was going to be. And they sort of, you know, offered an exclusive. And um, my 300-word story turned into, like, here's your big break, kid. You're going to write a cover story. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> so that's what happened. And then that was a huge break, and Eminem, obviously, everybody knows uh, what happened with him. And then, then did he ask you to write the book about him, or did you ask him if you could write a book about him? Yeah, basically, you know, I, I wrote the first cover story, that was the first national cover story on him anywhere, um, and I got more access than anyone else, really. Like, he let me interview his mom. He was like, this is really, let's just do it. Let's just, he, like, he and I got along, and he was just like, to his manager, like, you know, I'm going to give him access, let him, he can be Kim, all this stuff. So, so after that, that was like the seminal story. Um, and I was the only guy, Rolling Stone, that he didn't want to talk to. And so I we kept interviewing him over the years. And then the book was really, I approached him and said, listen, I want to do a book. Cause I, I was, I wanted to move out of magazines, um, cause times were changing and I was really, you know, I'd reached the top there and I didn't want to become an editor and deal with business meetings and all that. I like writing. That's that's what I do. So, um, you know, I was going to use that as an opportunity to leave and, and get a book deal and all that stuff. So um, I went to them and said, listen, I want to do this. Do you want to do, like, the co-written autobiography? And they said, like, no. You know, listen, Eight Miles coming out, that's enough autobiography. But someone's going to write this book We'd like it to be you, so we'll cooperate and give you some exclusive interviews and let you, you know, we won't put the word out to not talk to you in his intimate camp. So this, so it was kind of like an authorized, but not officially authorized. Right. Some of the best books turn out that way. So they let me interview everybody, but the whole book is from my perspective and my opinion. So it's kind of even better. It's like they didn't see it, so I could write, you know, whatever I want. Right, with their sort of known, known blessing, but also you weren't going to fuck them over at the same time. Like, that was understood. Well, yeah, I mean, I, didn't, I had no need to, you know. I, I certainly could have. Like, his, his mom used to call me at Rolling Stone, and I didn't even tell my editors after a while because I didn't, I was, like, sort of protective of that because it was just kind of sad. It was, you know, she obviously is troubled, and they have a troubled relationship. Um, but I didn't want my connection to make to turn into some sort of tabloid thing where you know she's calling me maybe after some drinks and, and crying about why marshall you know was, was suing her and all this kind of stuff that to me is like private so uh i don't even think they knew that but but um you know they trusted me enough with with some some uh, intimate connections to him and all that stuff i i think he's great i wasn't i wasn't going to do a hatchet job it was definitely going to be sort of a contextual understanding of why he was the biggest artist right now. That's what the book is about. It's not a straight bio. It's more like an analysis of how he was hated and then adored by the same people that hated him after they saw his Hollywood makeover. So it's really kind of about our country and media and all that stuff too, not just rap. Right, right. And uh, and was he? had you been like a crazy rock and roll memoir uh, book guy before all this had happened? Like, was that your thing? Because I'm a crazy rock and roll memoir book guy. Um, never never thought to actually write one, but were you into them? Uh, not, you know, not tremendously, not in any sort of, like, reading all the time way at all. Um, I read No One Here Gets Out Alive in college. Yeah, that's um, a good one. Fun. 
that's a great one. And that's the Jim Morrison I, one, yeah. Dopey Nation, if you yeah. want to know. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, great one, great one. It's sort of like written it's not, you know, it wasn't co written, but um it's it's a really does a really good job of sort of getting you in the mindset of um of Jim Morrison. And uh that one was great. I don't like you know what? I mean by then that might have been the only one I really got into. <laughs> that, that that I would say it's sort of in that category of, of what I did um, so no I wasn't like a huge fan of them and and uh, since then people are always asking me if I've read this one or that one and, and I don't read a lot of them just because it's kind of what I do now so it's like I it's kind of so with some of them you know if I love the artist I certainly will but um, in terms of reading other rock or music books it's like I just get too critical. I'm like, well, I would have done this differently, and right. this guy did. <laughs> it's sort of like it's not relaxing. Like if I'm reading for pleasure, uh, I like to read something that's totally different than what I do for work. So, but if something's really awesome, I'm going to read it. You know. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And from and Eminem liked the book. Obviously, you you still talk to him? Uh, as much as anyone might. Right. Which is less less year by year. Um, he's very private and very close off these days. So, so you don't you um, don't think you could get him? You don't think you can get him to come on Dopey? Do a little exclusive on his <laughs> methadone problem or whatever? Yeah, I'm sorry, but I don't do favors like that for anyone but my own projects. You know, people always ask me for that kind of stuff. No friends, but I mean, listen, maybe you could get him. No, I'm joking. Um, I, I don't see Marshall oh, Mathers oh. coming on coming on Dopey anytime soon. But that's a pipe dream yeah. down down the down the pike. Um, well. I mean, listen, you know, he is outspoken about his recovery and stuff, so you never, you never know. You really, honestly, you never know with that guy. He's, he's less um, predictable than ever. He really just does what he wants, and if it's not what he wants, he's not doing anything. Like, he doesn't care. Right. So, um, which you have to respect. That's awesome. He's earned the right to do that. I found, I found for me to get people on the show, the, the only way that I have an amazing record of getting people on the show is when I go see them in person. Like I find them, like I track them down or I get lucky and they stumble to where I work. Then I can get, like I had Mark Marin on recently. I had Andy Dick on recently. Artie, I stalked like a leopard in the jungle for years and eventually he came around. But it's like all about like the email to the manager is never going to get somebody on the show. You know, it just doesn't work like that for me at least. Um, I want to hear about though, like it seems like a lot because, because, Anthony went on to, to write about Tommy Lee, the drummer from Motley Crue, In Excess, of course, Artie Lang, Slash, Mick Fleetwood. And the one thing that all these people have in common, besides being amazing talents and interesting personalities, is they're all drug addicts. All of them. Yeah, some more than others. <laughs> um, well, I guess, you know. I don't know. I don't know if, like, Mick has really declared himself a drug addict he did um, he did he did in the in the behind the music on uh on fleetwood mac he said he was a cocaine addict during uh rumors yeah. and all that stuff so maybe he's not yeah. like i'm mick fleetwood and i'm an addict but he said he's that's, been that's addicted what, to cocaine right yeah that's how i mean it. i don't think he identifies as, as such but for sure he was addicted to cocaine. He hasn't done in years and years and years. But, yeah, that, that's what I meant to. Like, I don't think he's showing up at meetings or, or being a spokesman for sobriety or anything like that. I guess the question is what – do you think something about an addict draws you in or is it a coincidence? What do you think? Um, I don't really seek them out. <laughs> I think it's more – you know, I think that this part and parcel of, of certainly the music business and entertainment business and just life in general um, 
Yeah, I did. You know, there was never my goal with with signing up for co-writing any of those books. It was not like addiction story. I'm I'm going to do it. I think it's just very common um, in music, you know, and and tragedy, obviously. So um, I think you know, I definitely uh, like to go for more challenging characters. You know, somebody like Slash is, is someone who never really did interviews and finally was ready to. To me, that's like that's the story. That's why I showed up. Um, it wasn't, you know, like I, the depths of his addiction he had never really talked about. So a lot of that was news to me. Um, the serious, serious heroin and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you, you knew about it a little bit, but again, he was really private. So um, really for me, it's just, you know, it's the talent and the person. Uh, the drugs and rock and roll go along with, you know, it just kind of comes with a lot of the territory. Um, you know, and for something like In Excess, Michael Hutchins was gone, but the like I, you know, grew up loving that band. So for me, the opportunity to write about the years of their career that I really enjoyed was it. Um, like I don't shy away from that stuff at all, but it doesn't. It's not the main sort of draw for me. For the Slash book, you sat down with him to write it, right? Yeah, those are, all of my co-writes, or, which is most of the books that I've done, except for uh, two, everything else has been with the artist. Um, and I write in their voice and get to know them and tell their life story. And does it feel oh, like, yeah. so do you sit with them, or is it a lot of phone calls? Like, what's the process usually like? Like with Slash, I, what was the process like? Um, I moved to L.A. for a couple months and um, basically met him from he had he was sober freshly you know had been rehab got clean and he used to um basically stay up late at night from like like midnight to four he put his kids to bed his wife would go to bed he would sort of go in this little hang room that he had where he had a guitar and like a little recording thing and when he wasn't sober he would like do drugs in there and hang out so he was on that schedule so instead he filled that time with hanging out with me so um, I would show up just to like 11 or midnight and he would stay in that room till like uh, like 4 o'clock in the morning and then I'd go back to my, my place. That's kind of how we did it. So it was like three times a week for three months, pretty much. And he was sober. Face to face. Yeah, totally, 100%. And he's been sober since. And did you find, do you find that it's easier to work with a sober person than somebody high on drugs? Yeah, I think anybody would agree to that, yeah. Yeah. And when you were with Slash, did, was like his snakes in the room? Were you like feeding rats to the snakes and, you know, no. baking cookies or anything? <laughs> Nothing like that. No, I think the snakes were, he was in a rental house at that point. And he, I don't, I think this, I don't know where the snakes were. I don't think they were in, they might have been in another structure. But no, his, it was in his little hang room, which was like a TV, little recording thing, couple guitars, and, uh, and that's about it. <laughs> right. I, I interviewed Slash once years and years ago. I was uh, I was doing a music show and I was on heroin and he was touring with Slash's Snake Pit and he was on heroin yeah. and uh, we didn't talk about heroin. We were at Wetlands in Manhattan and um, it's just wild to to be in that situation, you know, to be all fucked yeah. up with somebody else who's all fucked up and neither of you realize it. Um, right. Or wow. maybe I knew it, and he, maybe we both knew it, but it wasn't discussed. I wish it had been discussed. That would have been a much more interesting interview than whatever the fuck I wound up asking him. <laughs> um, but let's get to, um, I really want to hear about how you wound up getting hooked up with Artie and, and what that experience was like. Uh, our old book agent, the one who hooked us up. 
Um, he sucks. But anyway, uh, he, that was my old agent. Um, I was like my first real agent in the industry. And, you know, a lot of times when you're just kind of starting out, you, uh, you get taken a little bit. But anyway, um, that guy hooked us up. They, they had already meeting a couple of writers. I was the first one, and he always says later, like, you know, I, the first guy was the best, uh, at least in this story. So um, what had happened to me was, like, a couple days before that, I had been in, I was in a cab that got uh, rear-ended, and I hit my head against the, uh, the what do you call it, the partition. Right. Um, and and I had, like, basically had, it was like a day or so later, I started getting, like, black eyes. And it didn't, I didn't really register, but I hit myself and, you know, kind of post an accident like that. You can get black eyes, right? So I started having, like, it sort of started creeping in, and I was a little bit like Alice Cooper. I had, like, this black, like, two black eyes, and it was crazy. So when I showed up to the meeting to meet Artie, I was wearing sunglasses, and he said later that he was, like, excited and thought I was probably on drugs. Right. <laughs> but at the end of the end, the end of the lunch meeting, I had to be like, listen, guys, I, I hope you don't think I'm just some, like, you know, ass, like, wearing shades inside for a meeting, uh, and here's why. And I, like, showed them, I was like, I didn't want to, you know, freak you out that I've got two black eyes, but there's a little tidbit for you. Artie thought it was funny. He thought, like, oh, great, this guy's strung out like me. <laughs> I'm sure Artie was loving that moment. When he found out that you didn't, he was probably totally disappointed, which is hysterical. Maybe. Um, in, in all of this, you know, in all of these, um, relationships, it sounds like, uh, was Tommy Lee sober when you dealt with him or was he all fucked up? Yeah, no, Tommy was very much out of my and, um, definitely drinking. Definitely. That was the first co-write I had done. So I'd never like been on that side of the fence. Usually I was a journalist interviewing this time. I was on the other side, you know, behaving with the artist and, trying to be the artist in print so well, you're channeling was, your, your inner Hunter S. Thompson Gonzo reporter kind of thing right. so what was that well, like were there any crazy crazy drinking stories with Tommy Lee um I mean it's all pretty much it's most in the book like the greatest thing about Tommy was that he was like he, he didn't want his book to be like anyone else's he, he was at that point he was out of Motley Crue didn't want to talk about Motley Crue so his answer was like alright every time you want to ask me about Motley you gotta do a shot of Jack so, like, that was said, like, 11 in the morning. I ended up living with him because I was not sober enough to drive all the way down the canyon in Malibu, where he lived at the time, to get back to my rented apartment. I was like, like just go ahead, dude. Um, so that's what I did. And I lived with him for nine months and still, like, super best friends. He's, like, a big brother I never had. Right on. And uh, so that must have been insane. What was, what was the weirdest situation in Tommyland? Was there anything that was just so crazy that you have to divulge the story? Uh, well, if it's that crazy, why would I ever divulge Just the divulge story? the story. <laughs> give me a little dirt, please. Nah, nah, I can't. I can't give you the crazy stuff, man. Uh, but I'll tell you this. You know, I did go to the Playboy Mansion uh, for the Midsummer Night's Dream Party with Tommy the first time he'd ever been there as a single man. Wow. So what do you think that was like? <laughs> that was weekend-long adventure. <laughs> that's all I can say. <laughs> but it was amazing. So I, there's a lot of stuff like that. You know, Tommy went to, like, Tommy's home. Um, he is that house, which is the one that was on Cribs for MTV. That's where he lived. And, like, next door, he had a dirt bike track. So pro motocross guys just ringing the doorbell, being like, hey, man, can we just jump all day? And, like, bring, like, a keg of beer and all these girls. It was just ridiculous. It was super fun. <laughs> At one point after a few months, I was like, 
holy shit, I have to write something now. <laughs> but um, I just buckled down and did it, like literally in his recording studio while he was recording. <laughs> so it was, it was fun. It was definitely fun. It put put some hairs on my chest, I'll tell you that much. I'm sure. I'm sure that immersive, that's really immersive uh, journalism, you know, memoirism, whatever you want to call it, memoiring. No, for sure. And, and no one before, no one since, I haven't had that much. You know, Slash was really cool. Slash was in it, man. He was really in the process, but it was totally different than that. You know, he had me over, like I said, in his little sort of sanctum um, all night, a couple times a week. But um, no one else has ever, I've never had an experience like that while with Tommy ever again. And it was, it was my first time co-writing, so I was like, whoa, is it going to feel like this with everybody? Right, right. He seems <laughs> like the kind of guy that would want a little brother. And he, he was so, like, like a tribe, you know, like, like for him, Motley Crue was so tribal. And, like, you could tell just from the interviews. Like that he loves people, you know. He loves bonding. Yeah, yeah. He got, he got one for sure. And there was definitely like a bit of hazing going on. He's like like keep up. He wanted me to like live just like him if I was going to write the book, and I pretty much did <laughs> somehow. Right. I was uh, young then. <laughs> right, right. And you're lucky you you un, you you uh, emerged unscathed, non-alcoholic, which is good. Yeah, I definitely had to, had to scale back. You know, there are times I was left back home and I'd be like calling my friends who still worked in magazines when those existed. And I'd be like in the middle of the day and they'd be like, what are you, are you drinking? I'm like, yeah, dude, a couple shots of Jaeger. And I was like, wait a second, I'm not living there anymore. I'm going to stop this shit. <laughs> like that was normal there. Right, so. right. It was like a rude awakening. And what was, what was the process with Artie like? Did he have you over in Jersey City? Was he taking you to gigs? Did he have you at the store? show were you copying dope with him what was the story oh none of that Artie's like a true I've never seen or done or no drugs with with Artie um, he's he is uh, you know I think he anything that he would got he'd keep for himself first of all if I was even I'm not even into that stuff like he is but anyway um you know, I went to the Stern Show a little bit. Uh, mostly it was, like, in his apartment after the Stern Show. You know, at the time when we did the first book is when you really had that busy schedule of the Stern Show and then all these stand-up gigs. So um, I'd meet him at the end of the Stern Show or come and listen to, like, the last hour and then ride with him back to Jersey, uh, to Hoboken, and, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, like, interview in the car and then stay there and work with him. Yeah. Uh, or like on a day off. I mean, he was, you know, like all of that and a, and a closet heroin addiction. The guy was tired. So, so usually I try to get him then because then he'd fall asleep eventually, you know, and I, I would try to like, then when the, when the show was off uh, in the summer, I went down to his beach house. Um, and that's when I, you know, really realized how, how bad he was because he was like, you know, his parent, his mom was around and he had people over. And then we were at one point, you know, it, at some point in the weekend, we're the only two there, and we're supposed to work, and we're, we're the only two people in this three-story house, and he's down the hall in his bedroom texting me, telling me to meet him on the top floor at 5.30. I'm like, okay, right. <laughs> I see what's going on here. Right. And then, like, you know, eating, like, endless Twinkies and falling asleep while we're trying to work, and then wanting to drive back to Jersey. I'm like, I'm driving, dude. You're not driving. <laughs> so, anyway, it's problematic. It always has been, um, but... I love the guy. Wish him the best. Of it's course, incredible work together. The book is great. You know, I stand by all of our books. I, I read, um, I read um, "Too Fat to Fish" as soon as it came out. I read that book probably three times, and uh, and then I read "Crash and Burn." And I have to say, 
you know, Crash and Burn is like one of my favorite books I've ever read. It's it's so dark and real and uh, and sad. You know, it's yeah. funny as hell, but it's fucking sad. And um, it re- I, he gave me an autographed copy of Wanna Bet, but I've had a hard time opening it up yet. Um, Correct. Because I feel for Artie, and I and I love Artie. Um, and I, I'm not ready to read it yet. You know, I want to see him get a little bit better before I start reading it for whatever reason. Um, I sure hope he does. I, I believe that he can. I believe anybody can. Um, I mean, that's half of the show. You know what I mean? Like, I, I was addicted right. to heroin for 13, 14 years. Uh, I was on methadone for many years. And, uh, you know, I'm three and a half years clean or three years and four months clean or three months around there. Um and I, and I, you know, I don't think I, nobody's the worst addict. Nobody's the best addict. You know, the best addict might never get sober and the worst addict might get 30 years. You know, you never know what the fuck is going to happen. And I think Artie, who's, you know, obviously hardcore, uh, could surprise everybody, you know, because. Sure hope so. I mean, you know, it's like that and the weight and all that stuff. It's just uh, only so much body can take. Listen, I'm always rooting for him. Uh, always, always, always. And I hope that he gets out of rehab and it's. Sticks for sticks for a while, and he gets his, you know, gets back on the horse, man. He's really funny. He's one of the funniest, probably the funniest human I know. And uh, it's a shame that he's not out there making people laugh. Well, I think he is, and he'll get back there. What was the difference, you know, between the? I, I know that you don't want to talk forever. Um, the between the first, second, and third book, like what was like was the how different was the mindset? Like was meeting up with Artie because. Between the first and the second, he was still, you know, he had lost his job, but he was still sort yeah. of on top of his game in a way. You know, he he. Pro- well, he disappeared for two years. I mean, he spent two years in bed at his mom's house, pretty much, just like sneaking into sneaking pills from drug dealers who would drop it off. And um, right, right. You know? So I'm wrong. He wasn't on the top of his game. The second book. That was the only time that I've seen him actually really good. Like, really clean. He really did the work. He was out. He was going to meetings. I went to meetings with him and stuff. Just to be supportive and check it out and all that stuff. And, you know, that was the best he was. Doing that book was, was probably, he was the most focused. Um, and, yeah, I mean, too fat to fish, he was focused, too. He loved the process. He liked our partnership because he could just talk to me, tell me stuff. And he already presents things being a comedian and a you know, radio veteran. He knows how to present a story. But he loved how I would take it and what I would do to it. And so the detail I would give it, and i just go inside of it and make it come alive a little bit more. So with, with Crash and Burn, he, you know, he, he loved that process already. Um, and he was clear-headed. So I would say the working process of the first part of it um, was awesome. Might have been fish ever were. Uh, it was also the darkest and hardest to write. Um, physically, for me, it was very upsetting. Like, there were times where I was very upset just writing these passages, but I wanted it to be as real as possible. Um, like and what, was, what, was, what was the worst thing you, had, you remember sitting there and struggling with? Just because a lot of the Dopey Nation didn't read the book, and maybe you could just share, like, the, 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 one of the worst stories in your mind. Um... Jeez, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, just like there's there's the chapters where, honestly, where he's just in bed at his mom's house above the garage and, and still just, you know, desperately depressed and then addicted to opiates and taking pills. And the like, dealer, the dealers were, like, dropping pills off under the garbage can and stuff, if I remember correctly, or by the mailbox yeah, like or something. Yeah, in the bushes outside the window, all the crap like that. 
um, whole thing of suicide, how like the, the details of how he tried to kill himself um, was really hard to, to recreate. Uh, some of the harder interviews he recorded and sent me the tape because he couldn't do it with anyone else in the room. Like right. the amount of detail and honesty that he put into it. You know, those parts were, it was brutal. He, you know, cut himself nine times. He drank, he, he tried to just murder himself. And it was, it was a nightmare. So all that stuff was somebody that you care about. It's pretty, you know, my job is to make details come alive and making those horrible ones come alive was definitely very, very, very upsetting. So that's probably the worst part to answer your question. Right. Well, you did an amazing job, and, and you write amazing Thanks. books. I really enjoyed uh, every one of them that I've read. And before you go, would you just uh, okay. in, indulge us with the Courtney Love story? What was the story there? Uh, I, or is that I illegal? Really can't. Legally, I can't. I wish I could. I have so much to say about that one. But, I mean, you know, this, uh, really, I, I can't. I'm not really supposed to talk about her. It's in, illegal. In any sort of a way. Uh, we, had, we had an agreement All right. so, for me to, to get... Um, Again, she owed me, <laughs> which is very significant. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I had to do, agree to. But, I mean, what I can say is that, you know, we had a contract to write a book, wrote the book. She had the right to not have it published. That was fine. We had a publisher who wanted to do it, who's still trying to get her to finish her memoir uh, with somebody else. With two, she don't do, like, two other writers, from what I understand. But um, the book is complete. Um, it's awesome <laughs> it really is but she had the right to pull the plug at any time and say she didn't want to publish it but if we had done a certain amount of work and the publisher liked it she had to pay me and that is where she just decided she didn't want to that's where she so balked right yeah so I sued her and then uh, she had to pay me <laughs> so which is lame that's the only time in you know like 12 uh, god 13 years of doing this that anyone's ever been uh, <laughs> ever tried to pull that or been generally unhappy to the point where they didn't want to work with me so right um but you know at least <laughs> i don't think it surprised anybody to hear that right 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 it's, it's living up uh, to I, type I I, yeah i wish i could tell you more I, I so many times i wish that people could read this i mean hopefully she'll reconsider you know she wanted it to be the story of her life in rock and roll and that's what we wrote it's done and uh it's in a vault man sadly and before you go, what do you think about writing with addicts in general? Like, what have you learned? What have you taken away from all these drug addicts and crazy people? <laughs> I love that your first question was like, do you just do it because they're addicts? <laughs> um, well, what I've taken, you know, it's, it's obviously it's an incredibly complicated set, you know, set of traits. The psychology is complicated. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's the opposite of... I mean, it's self-serving, but, it, but it's self-destructive. You know, it's it's fascinating. That you know, that's kind of what I was getting at with Artie with Wanna Bet. Um, the main thing there was like after we'd gone through all this stuff, with crash and burn, and you know, really gotten into the the depths of, of his uh, his low point um, of his bottom. Then, uh, to me, he still kind of had this attitude about it. Like, it's hard to explain, but his his whole philosophy was just that. Everything's so good, I'm going to see how I can mess it up. You know, right, that's my right. whole thing with Wanda Bet, which was me pushing him, he said one thing at the end of, of Crash and Burn was that gambling is his first vice. And he would always have these gambling stories, and he's like, it's that rush, it's that excitement that I've been chasing, and eventually that became drugs. And that resonated with me, and I wanted to write a book kind of about 
that philosophy. And if that's your drive, how do you live with that? Um, and in his case, you know, he's a perfect example of <laughs> he's trying to live with it, but um, it goes well sometimes, it doesn't go well other times. So to me, that that is, you know, that's the deepest I've gotten into that psychology. Um, so I guess to answer your question, I find that interesting. It's obviously a problem that millions and millions of people worldwide struggle with. So I think that it's worthwhile to investigate in any way possible. And I do hope that anything I write, like especially with Artie and that stuff, I hope it helps people. I really do. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's just so common that it's worth exploring until people can understand it or, you know, maybe someone will read one of those books and be like that one will like you said some it's hard to tell which rehab is going to work for people maybe that book will, will save somebody or, or at least get them thinking about it differently right um, I think if nothing so else that, that's really it yeah. the, the point of this show I don't think you know the point is not to save anybody because I don't think I ever could but the point is for me it's like and your books they kept me company while I was in active addiction and, and being high is very lonely and like that's the point of dopey it's to keep everybody company you know because like people need company loneliness is one of the worst things there is and yeah, you can't sure. really get clean until you don't feel totally isolated so i think you know i don't know if, if you're and this is not to put you down i don't know if your book is going to save anybody but it definitely yeah, yeah, kept no, me company on, at my worst and i appreciate that a lot yeah man oh well of course you're welcome i i don't think that a book can save anybody and only they can save themselves right you know but uh but you're right you, you phrased it better if it can keep people company then awesome i'll keep doing it you know um, right on man. i was uh i recently actually uh derek from uh some 41 who got sober after a big bout of drinking i heard through his manager and actually from him personally we had lunch he said that he uh he did it himself he sort of you know got doctors to help him medicate but he said the thing that kept him going is he read the tommy book and he read the slash book like five times he's nice. like i read a bunch of rock books but i read those over and over and thanks so that's cool that is cool <laughs> you know, man. keep people company and same thing with your podcast it's people company and it keeps them here and keeps them wanting to fight and that's good man and we're doing something right right on man thank you so much for coming on and i'm sorry i went way past your allotted time yeah. i hope it didn't destroy totally your day cool. all right cool no, man totally fine man it's all good uh, i'm happy to be here all right if you ever need anything from us you know where to find me and uh all right well i i actually have a podcast launching in january but it's but it's about wine and music <laughs> so i don't really don't want to advertise that um, let them know but, uh, let them let, you know put a plug in just because i'm happy to put a plug in in your podcast even though they're all alcoholic drug addicts who shouldn't be listening to know, enthusiastic I'm, I'm, wine podcasts anthony boza <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I was. I didn't know if I should bring it up, uh, but it, you can decide if you want to keep this in or not. But I'll keep it in. Wino. All right, it's called Wino, like wine plus vinyl. Um, and the premise basically is that I interview either people from the food and wine world, like chefs or winemakers, or musicians, or anybody really. Um, they pick a favorite record of theirs, a record that changed their life, and I pick a wine that in some way reflects that record the sound of the music or whatever and we just talk about it and it's just a good excuse to kind of interview people from either the food world or the music world so or the wine world anyway in the wine world easily wine easily this is the this is the most inappropriate plug since i had the inventor of suboxone on the show but what are you going to do um, I'm really sorry. You don't have to keep it, man. No, thank you. I appreciate it, and I will keep it because uh, you're a real sport, and I really appreciate you coming on. 
All right. Thanks, man. We can, we can talk uh, my next time. I'm writing part two of my M&M book. So when that comes out sometime next year, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that. Dope. Awesome, man. Thank it's, you. It's going to cover all of his recovery and stuff. So my, that'll be more appropriate than my wine podcast. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, the, and I'm really looking forward to that. And I know that the fans love M&M as I do. So that's awesome. All right. Well, thanks, bud. Have a good uh, rest of your day. You too, man. I hope I meet you sometime in person. That would be awesome. All right. Take care. Later. Bye. So, Anthony Boza, Anna David, the dopey literary episode is finally over. And um, I want to thank both of them for coming on. That was awesome. Um, I don't know. Something happened this week that I think I would like to mention, which is uh, my grandmother died, my grandma Pearl. Uh, She was 98 years old, and um, she was an amazing grandma. Uh, The last, you know, nine years of her life or something were, you know, she was really losing it. Her her husband, my grandfather, died 10 years ago, and she was slipping away, and she was uh, going in and out of, of... really being able to pay attention or know what was happening. I guess it was dementia, the beginnings of dementia. And, um, but I remember my grandma when I was a kid and she, uh, she lived in Queens and Casino Boulevard and she had three sons. My dad was the oldest and he had two brothers and they, uh, the five of them lived in a two bedroom, small apartment in a, a housing project in Queens And I remember when I was a kid, we would go out there for Friday night dinners, and it was like something out of a movie. My grandfather would come home. He was a meat inspector. He would take off his white coat and his white helmet and hang it in the front closet. He was like a very Archie Bunker kind of character. And uh, my dad had these two brothers, and they would laugh, and they would sing, and my grandma was just the sweetest person uh, you could ever meet. She did not have a bad word to say about anybody she was an amazing baker. She was just, she was the most loving person I ever met. And uh, very sad that she died. Um, and it just conjures up uh, all the losses of the year. My grandmother got to live to 98. Uh, Chris made it to 34, I think. And Todd was 44. Everybody always says to live your life like it's uh, the last day. Or the, the whole point is to, is to live the best version you can live. Uh, be as good as you can to the people that you care about, even in the people that you don't care about. It's like we all, it just sounds like such do-gooder shit here, man. Uh, I'm just sad that my grandma died. I loved her. She was uh, an amazing grandmother. And um, I just wanted to you know, do a little tribute to her. She was my father's mother, obviously. And my father uh, was obviously very affected by her death. He was going to come on Dopey this week, but um, I figured, you know, she died and it would have been a little bit too crazy and personal and emotional to have him on, but he's going to come on next week. He's got a lot of dopey criticisms that I'm very anxious to get to. So look out for the return for my dad, Alan, next week. And, you know, you know the drill. Stay strong and keep your fucking head on straight and look out for your fellow brother and sister in and out of recovery and do the next right thing and honor the great reality within and, 
you know, bird in the hand is better than two in the bush, and, you know, you can't count your chickens before they're hatched and all that good stuff. Um, I don't know. I'm tempted to try to do forever in debt before I go. And I said I would, and I'm a man of my word, so I'm going to try to do it. But before I do, uh, I just want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I want to thank Cormac for Reddit, Facebook guys for facilitating Facebook, you know, everybody for participating in Dopey because Dopey is nothing without you guys, without the Dopey Nation. Um, I played that thing at the beginning of the show uh, from me and Chris singing uh, The Tokens, The Lion Sleeps Tonight at the front of the show. That was actually from Dopey episode 39, a fairly retarded episode. But, you know, I listen to that and I smile and I get choked up because uh, we did dope because it was fun. And now I do it because it exists and because um, I love to do it. So happy fucking Hanukkah. Send in a fucking voicemail. Keep it short and funny and sweet and dopey. Keep it dopey. Uh, Stay strong, dopey nation. Toodles for Chris. And here's forever in debt. One, two, three, forever in debt. Building standing set, standing their ground to defend against the rest. We're all at odds, don't forget your bets from the roof I yell. You hardly break a sweat, sabotage is no longer camouflage. It's almost in the open so you better quit your job. You can't say it looks too good, it could be a mirage. Pointed at your head, I think it's time to dodge. Show I can't anyone 